Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, July 12th. That means it's time for the Power Hour. Later on today, we'll also have an episode of The Pit that will happen at 9.30 Pacific time. So we have an hour and a half here for all of your maintenance-related questions. We're going to open the phone lines right now. I've got the team with me from Pittsburgh Power. We'll hear from them, then we'll get to your calls and questions. So line them up. I promise if you dial right now, you'll get in. Don't wait till the end of the show. 855-950-3835 is the number to join us. I've got a couple things, but I think I'm going to hold off on mine, and we're going to hear from... Bruce, it looks like you're up first on the board. Welcome back. Uh, thank you, Kevin. As always, it's our pleasure. Great to have you here. What's on your mind this week? Well, we uh, found some, there's a shortage of turbochargers. And so we found some for big cams on eBay. And so we ordered two. I just wanted to get them in, take them apart. They're supposedly rebuilt. I wanted to see what they did to rebuild them because I used to rebuild two to three turbos a day back in the 80s. And it turns out that they're not what they're advertising, not the part number. So we called and they said, well, our tech said this turbo will work on that engine. <laughs> they're saying it's a 444 turbo, but it's not. It's a big cam four 400 CPL. 676 and it's a single inlet when most of the newer big cams and all of the electronic cats that people are putting these turbos on are all made for twin inlet turbos so you got to be careful when you're buying parts on ebay or off the computer that you're going to get what you think you're asking for good point there was, there was a term years ago that i never liked it was called Will Fit. And it was basically generic parts. And they said, well, these will fit on your engine. No, you don't want will fit parts. You no. want parts that are exactly for that engine. And if you're building a performance engine, you want the parts that we know work for performance. Yeah, you know, I and think that's what I, have. I, I think we're about to see a lot more of that with um, shortages. You know, I, um, I I was reading yesterday, there's a company starting up here in the U.S. because, and they're going to start up just to build the chips that we can't get. I think we're going to see more and more of this. Our, our worldwide supply chain is still kind of a mess. I read yesterday, there's still $40 billion worth of goods sitting in container ships off the West Coast. We haven't even cleared that up yet. And... I read a book, I'm probably going to talk about it again on the pit today, um, about how our worldwide supply chain is, is going to change pretty dramatically. It's actually not all bad news. We may be bringing back a lot of manufacturing to the U.S. That would be a good thing. So, But I have a feeling, based on what I'm reading, these supply chain shortages, this may be the norm now. I mean, we may not be talking months or even years. We may be talking a decade before this straightens itself out. Interesting. Yeah. Well, 
Well, yeah. You know, a lot of times we all wish we were much younger than we are. Maybe we don't want to wish that anymore. Yeah, that's a scary thought. I mean, think about your grandkids and, you know, it's just going to be a very different world for them. And I, I guess that, you know, happens every couple of generations, but uh, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, some interesting stuff. If, uh, like I said, I don't know if um, I think both John and Stan are uh, going to try to join me today. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. But uh, all right, let's find out. Um, I think we've got Pete and Leroy here. Good morning, guys. Morning, morning, Kevin. Pete, what's on your mind this week? Okay, a couple of things. So um, after the show, I'm going to head out to Walcott, Iowa for the Truckers Jamboree. It starts Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Saturday this week. I generally drive to the other side of Ohio. I spend the night, and then I get there at a decent hour to set up. So as, after the show, I'll be going there. And uh, on route, I'm going to stop off at the TA in Gerard, Ohio, who's one of our new catalyst dealers. We'll stop off and, and visit with them for a little bit before I head to the show. Got it. So that's my plans for today. Um, what I wanted to talk about was the fleet air filter. We had someone talking about cleaning it. And it, there is a way to clean it. And it, it has to be done correctly. Obviously, it's an air filter, so we make sure it's clean and that it holds up. So... When you clean it, you want to use dish soap. We use um, Dawn dish detergent. It seems to work well. Um, you clean each labor, each layer separately, you know, one at a time in a bucket of soapy water. Uh, once it's cleaned and rinsed out well, it needs to dry. And this is where having an extra set of wraps are nice. Because while these are drying and you got to, you know, get them ready for the next time, you could have the other set in the truck. You know, and we do sell extra wraps. Once they're dry, then they need to be oiled. And the only thing you can use on it is the cloth foam filter oil. You don't want to just put motor oil or, you know, whatever on there. It has to be that. If not, it could damage the foam and it, it'll deteriorate. I've seen filters come in that look like they had motor oil and it destroyed the filter. Because the foam can't handle it. And then they have to be oiled in a, um, a, a certain way. One, you don't want to get them too much oil, obviously, or too little. Use the right amount. Generally, one filter takes about a third of a can to oil all three wraps. And you um, oil the inside one on the outside, the center on the inside, and the outer one on the inside. So there's a, a, a certain way to oil these to ensure that the uh, it filters completely. Got it. If you have all these filters, make sure you do it properly. And if, if you don't know how or forget, um, just go online and look, look it up. You want to make sure that uh, the, the filters are done properly. All but right. Hey, I, always thought, I always thought you just did the outer layer, but you're telling me you can do all three layers of foam. All three layers. Now, the early clear filters, the, the layer, the inside layer was not Velcro. And if you had one of those, you needed to put your whole filter in a bucket of water, which would be pretty tough to do. 
it is a pretty big bucket, obviously, yeah. to get it cleaned. Um, all the new ones now are the three separate wraps that uh, much easier. It's like cleaning out an old shop rag. I mean, it's pretty simple to clean up. Uh, and, of course, be somewhat gentle with it. You're not going to throw it in a washing machine or power washer or anything like that. Right. So let me ask you this question now. The most inner layer mm-hmm. that gets oiled on the outside, mm-hmm. and the second layer gets oiled on the inside, and the third layer is oiled on the outside. Did I get that correct? So the core is on the outside, the middle is on the inside, and the outside is on the inside. A little confusing. It's hard to remember stuff like that. Just Who, write it down. Who's on first? Can. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Important well, to get the, it done. The outer layer, the outer layer, the outer layer gets the heavy dirt naturally is oiled on the outside. So the second layer, they want more oiled on the inside. And mm-hmm. the third layer, the closest into the center, gets the outside. That's, I can remember that. That's interesting. Uh, I've never done that. So now I have to take and redo mine. And by the way, in a boat, we have to use baby oil because baby oil is not flammable, but it did. It did deteriorate after four years. It deteriorated uh, the rubber. So. Hmm. All right. No, it didn't. Didn't didn't fully melt it, but it 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 you can tell where it was wearing on it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, Pete. Anything else? Nope. That is it for me today. Leroy. Pete, do you have the list of the... Wait, wait, hold on one second. Pete, do you have the list of the uh, uh, PA truck stops with the... Print it out before the show, but I can get it while Leroy talks and we can uh, announce it. I'll make it quick. <laughs> yeah, be quick. I'll be quick. I'll get that list for you. All right. We good? I'm good. Yeah, we'll start the timer now. Pete's done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, All right. We've uh, back back in our uh, little department. We've been pretty busy this week. Uh, last week, Ty was gone, so D and Jr. had to hold down the fort. But we've been putting more time into our long term uh, sort of electrical problem that we've had, which is we're doing a uh, engine swap from a mechanical to an N14 and sort of the deeper we go, the more problems we're finding, but we got the tech working this morning, which was something when we started the project, we wondered if this was going to work. So originally the tech signal came right from the pump and it had a mechanical, not a mechanical, but it had a different tech in it. Now it has to come from the ECM. So we all, we were like, well, we can use a, tech signal off of the ECM, but we don't know if this aftermarket gauge is going to like that. So, we got hooked up this morning, and it, it really comes down to having the right tools makes, like, reverse engineering or just figuring out the problem a whole lot easier. Like, if you only had a multimeter or a test light, you'd be, it'd be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to get this tech to work right. 
So we have signal generators, we have oscilloscopes, we have all sorts of stuff to test this on the bench and make sure it works right. So we were able to hook up the TAC signal, because originally when we just put it in, the TAC would just stick at 1500 even though it was idling. It just didn't work at all. Not sure what we're going to do with it. So we ended up using the oscilloscope to see what the measurement was off of the ECM TAC signal, take it back to the bench, replicate the scenario on the bench, and then you know, there's the switches on the back that is used to calibrate the taxing signal. So you might have to put on switch one and switch three in order for it to read 600 RPM. But if you had a different tone wheel, the aftermarket tack gives you the ability to adjust it so whatever you come to is going to read right. And we were able to put on the bench. My back there? Yeah, there you go. Oh. Anyway, so we were able to replicate this scenario on the bench and get the tech signal to read right. So that part of it's done. Now we have to dig into all the other problems with it. So we're making progress, though. So, hey, Leroy? Yeah? Let's, this is the 359P that had the big cam mechanical Cummins in it that we're putting in the N14 electronic engine, correct? Correct. Okay. And why don't you explain to people what a tone wheel is? So, the, the old one had a tone wheel. So, what you have is, um, on a shaft, you have uh, a gear, basically, with multiple teeth on it. And different tone wheels have different number of teeth. So, let's say, just for simplicity, you have a wheel with just one nub sticking out of it, just one piece of the wheel that sticks higher than the others. So as that pass, as that little nub passes around the sensor, it's an inductive sensor, so basically kind of like a magnet, and it can detect when something is close and when something's not. So as the little tone nub passes the sensor, it will make a a high signal to the ECM. So there's there's something here. That's all the sensor says is there's something here. And then as it passes away, it says there's not something there. And then it comes back around. Okay, there's something there. There's not. There's there. There's not. Right? And then through a series of tasks, you can figure out what speed that is based on how many pulses per revolution it is. And you, the ECM can figure out what the speed is of that rotating shaft. So where is that tone wheel? So that's what it used to be. The tone wheel used to be in the fuel pump, I believe, on the mechanical. If I'm right on that one, I don't know if you know Pete. Does it have like a tone wheel inside the pump on the mechanical that we can? For the tack? Yeah. They did it up the, the flywheel. Okay. So that one. Oh, no. no they, it, well, they could do it up the flywheel or they did have a, um, on the pump itself, you put a mechanical gauge there. Yeah. The cable. Yeah, so, oh, it was cable driven wasn't like a tone wheel. Okay. No. So, the one that we have now doesn't actually have a tone wheel. It just is a signal that comes from the ECM itself. So, the ECM has its own position sensors and tone wheels for the cam and crank signal. And that gives the ECM its engine speed. And the ECM just outputs that engine speed on that thing. And that's the one that we're using for the gauge. Okay. 
So on a new truck, or let, let's say a 95 through 2002 Caterpillar 3406E or C15, where's the tone wheel? So the way that those ones work, and pretty much everything after that, is the tone wheels are on the cam and crank, and the ECM rates those. And it gives the engine speed uh, through the data link to the gauge. That's pretty much how all of them work. I think it was only like 93 and older, like the mechanicals that actually had like a tag signal. They sort of stopped doing that once they had the ability to have a data link. So what about a D-Deck 3 and D-Deck 4 60 series Detroit? Where's that tone wheel? Uh, same thing, just a uh, cam crank signal, uh, feed to the ECM. Okay. ECM gives a data link signal to the gauge. All right, on the newer ISX, the next 15, do they have a tone wheel? Nope, same thing, just uh, data link back to the gauge. Okay, and why don't you explain what an oscilloscope does? So what an oscilloscope does is it's mainly used to read signals that aren't just steady state signals. What I mean by steady state signal is if you hook uh, a multimeter or test light up to a bulb that has 12 volts on it, the test light will light up if it has 12 volts, and if it doesn't, it won't light up. If you have a multimeter, you put your uh, leads across the ground in the bulb, you'll see 12 volts on the gauge. Now, if it was a pulse signal, like the vehicle speed sensor, for instance, that is a pulse signal with a tone wheel, um, then it's going to most likely be too fast for most multimeters, and you're not going to see anything. You may see sort of an average between a high, so like a 5-volt signal and a zero, and the multimeter is not fast enough to read, you know, five zero five zero five zero at, you know, 120 hertz better, 360 hertz, et cetera. So it might give you an average, but it's not going to actually let you see what the signal looks like. So the oscilloscope is fast enough. Ours is, I think, rated up to, I think, 50 megahertz or 100 megahertz. So that's sort of radio wave territory. Um, you know, like your, what your FM radio goes up to, like, what, 108? usually 108 megahertz. Um, so your multimeter test light's not going to be able to see that signal. The oscilloscope is going to be able to see that signal. You can see where it is, if it has enough voltage, if it's degraded, if it's sort of, instead of a square, sort of a shape like a shark fin. There's a lot of things you can see with an oscilloscope. Okay. And a megahertz. You said that term. You have to explain that to us mechanical guys. What's a megahertz? So hertz is a unit of frequency. Um, so if you had, uh, what, 60 hertz, that is every second, right? It's a, it's a unit of how many pulses there is per second, right? So that's, that's another way you can think of it, the more easy way. It's how many pulses per second. So if you have 108 megahertz, you have 108 million uh, pulses per second. So, 108 nips pulses I think per second. I might be missing a zero there, but yeah, so, something like that. Some mornings after I work out too hard, I wake up with 60 hertz. <laughs> well, it feels that way anyway. So Kevin, the reason I'm asking these questions is there's a lot of people listening and we're a lot of us are mechanical people or hands-on mechanical people. And then when the electrical engineers start talking, 
these terms are fluent to them, just oh, like the yeah. ratio is to us. Yeah. And that's why I want the Leroy to explain this stuff because I mean, it can go in one ear and out the other, megahertz, oscilloscopes. You know, so he, no, yeah, I, actually, my on there, it's back in a 10 hertz signal that's actually 0.1 seconds. So you would have a pulse every 0.1 seconds is 10 hertz. So if you had 60 hertz, like your standard, like, uh, wall outlet, you have zero, it's every pulse, every, what, 0.6 seconds. Right. Now, I like this kind of stuff. I, and, it always helps me understand things. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, at least on the older electronic engines from the mid-90s and up through the early 2000s, didn't they shut off the 12 volts for so many milliseconds every second? And that's when they would scan the sensors and also change the timing once every second. Mm, I'm not sure on that one. I'm not sure. Okay. That was my understanding. Because remember when we came out with the power box in the year 2000, we had to have a little meter because if you use the hot wire that was shut off once or for so many milliseconds every second, then it would drive the power box crazy. So there wasn't a clean 12 volts. So if you put a test light on it or even a voltmeter, it showed 12 volts, but it was pulsating. And then, of course, right. the power box would see that and not know what to do with it. And that's where um, the oscilloscope would help find that problem, which we you know, obviously we found it. It is what they called it. It was not a clean 12 volts like what we think. Yeah, you can't do that with a meter. Right. right. Okay. Okay. All right. What else we got? Anything? Oh, Pete was going to make the list. I do. I have it. So I have uh, the list of the seven TAs that now carry the, the max mileage catalyst. We have one in Columbia, New Jersey. Duncan, South Carolina, Wildwood, Florida, Gerard, Ohio, Reddick, Florida, Carlisle, PA, and then the one in Virginia is Whitesville. I'm sure how to pronounce it. White, and I think it's called Whitesville. Could be. It's not without that. W Y T V I L E. And and we. And we have the Chrome Shop Mafia down in Joplin, Missouri. They have the Catalyst now in stock. So there's there's uh, probably over 150 dealers. Plus, there's somebody up on I-84 and in, in uh, Oregon that has it along the Columbia River. There is. Who would that be? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. right here on the beautiful know, Columbia I, River. I know. He, I know he sells. I know he sells some food. Yeah, but he uh, he also has sells catalysts. Yeah, food food for you and your he truck. Also, <laughs> 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 right. We'll feed your truck while you're here too. Yeah, you always say that truck needs to be on a steady diet of the catalyst. We're feeding the truck. 
beating the truck and the body. And hey, uh, Kevin, I got to tell you, your new way of working out, work one muscle to exhaustion. I think it's working. Bruce, and I don't know if that works for younger people, but it's working for my old body. You are going to be amazed. And then after you're amazed, you're going to think, how much time did I waste? Because I know you're like me. You've worked out most of your life. And I just look back at how much time I wasted. This method works so much better. It's just, it's crazy how we got this so wrong. Yeah. Right. Now, so if I'm doing back, I do three different backs, but only one, how do I want to say this? One muscle group at a time. But I don't do three sets, three sets, three sets, one set. Right. And and by golly, it's working. It is really working. And Good. What Good. used to take an hour now takes 15 minutes. I know. That's the crazy part. When I owned the gym, yeah. and that was, you know, where I spent all my time every day, uh, I, I was working out two hours a day, six days a week. Because I could. I was there. I had the time. I thought the more you work out, the better your results are going to be. That's not true. You overtrain when you do this. And that's that's the biggest problem with the way we lift weights. We end up overtraining and we waste all that time doing it. And now that we know, just fatigue a muscle till it can't work out anymore and you're done. 10 or 15 minutes, you've got you know half your body worked out, have two different workouts you alternate between, and it's so much more effective. And I, I, I know for me, there were many, many times where I'd look at the clock and go, oh, I know I need to work out today, but I just can't afford an hour. I just don't have it, so I'd skip that day. Well, if I can knock this out in 10 or 15 minutes, there's almost no excuse not to do it. Right. Maybe that's why in the total gym and I have those, uh, they said 10 minutes a day. Yeah, it, it, we, we never believed those things. We always thought, we always have yep. this mentality, if a little is good, a lot is better. That doesn't work with the catalyst, does it? No, it doesn't. It, there are many things where if a little is good, that's what you should use. A lot isn't better. You know, almost everything that we can measure ends up with some sort of a bell curve. Or sometimes we refer to it as the sweet spot. Just because more of something makes things happen doesn't mean more is going to keep making it happen. At, at some point, that's what happens. That's what a bell curve shows us. Where do you want to keep that range? And with muscles, it turns out that fatiguing a muscle one time every couple of days is the most effective way to build that muscle. Not trying to fatigue it 12 times by doing 12 sets of back exercises. Right. Okay. I just had to tell you that I think it's working. So Awesome. Love that. All right. Hey, you know, this idea, you guys kind of explained um, some things there, kind of going back to the basics, which we've we d done in the past. There's a question on the website, and I think this is a perfect time to do this too. So the question is, is using the engine brake too often bad for the engine brake? 
brakes are less expensive to fix. So I think a, a good way to approach this is to explain how an engine brake works. And then we could logically think through, is there any real downside to using the engine brake more often? And I'll just tell you the whole time I drove in all my trucks, I use the engine brake all the time. I mean, it just every chance to, if I can use my mechanical brakes less, that just seems to make more sense to me. And I do know that Jake brakes can wear out. Pete, you could probably talk about that. But let's just talk about what a Jake brake does because there's a lot of confusion about this. First off, the one thing I know confuses a lot of people, if the Jake brakes on, you're not using any fuel. It doesn't matter what your boost gauge says. doesn't matter what your RPMs are. There's no fuel going in the cylinder. Am I correct on that? Correct. Okay. No fuel, so we're not wasting any fuel doing this. Basically, aren't we just turning the engine into a giant air compressor? Isn't that really what's happening when we that activate the jack brakes? Whenever the injector normally would fire, the exhaust valve opens. And it takes about 2 million miles to wear out the Jake brake housing. And what I found when I was driving my Kenworth was even if you're going 35 or 40, using the Jake would take the forward momentum out of the truck and you use a whole lot less brake and sometimes no brake i mean there were many many times where just letting your foot off the throttle the jake activating was enough for that situation and you never touched the brake well you know if you're going along an interstate and you have you're going to get off at an exit and it's a mile away you start slowing down and if it's not a steep downhill ramp let's say it's a level or a slightly uphill and you Put the jake on once you get onto the ramp. A lot of times you hardly touch your brakes. That's that's correct. But the fact that, let's say you're at 30 miles an hour or 40, the jake will take the momentum out and start slowing the truck down, and then it takes a whole lot less brake. Yeah. So yeah. I, I use my jake a lot. Now, I, I don't believe in using it to shift the gear on a, on a truck. You know, you hear a guy going up through his, gears and you know engine will be revving and then you hear the jake then he grabs the gear oh, yeah. that, that don't, we don't think is good yeah i don't even understand that whole thing but um well so. they they did that back in the mechanical days if there was if your fuel pump was wearing out on your big can and the shaft was worried would take a little bit longer to decelerate so uh, okay. they wanted to grab the gear fast so they would use the jake brake but all we have to do is go through the pump and lap in a new throttle shaft, and that fixes that problem. Got it. So try to explain how this is working. If people understand how an internal combustion engine works, a diesel engine, the piston comes up towards top dead center. When it reaches the top, it's compressing fuel till the fuel gets so hot it explodes and pushes the piston back down. I mean, that's basically what keeps no. it. No. Oh, go ahead. Not quite. It, it, it's compressing the air and making uh, the compressing air. Compressing the air, that's right. I'm sorry. Hot. I said fuel. Yeah. And then 
Yeah, and, and then when the fuel gets injected, it takes 15 degrees of the 360 degree circle for that fuel to ignite. And that's where the Max Mileage Catalyst comes in. Instead of 15 degrees, it fires the fuel 33% faster, so it fires in 10 degrees. That's why you get the engines quieter uh, and the engine develops more torque because the fuel is firing 33% faster. And that's why there's no soot and carbon. There you go. We're compressing the air. Correct. I said the fuel. So if, the air. if we don't have the Jake brake on, but we let our foot completely off the throttle, throttle positions at zero, when that piston comes up, it's still compressing. We have a compression ratio. There's compression there. There might not be any fuel at this point, but the compression alone pushes the piston back down. And and when you activate the Jake brake, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. When we activate the Jake brake and you open that exhaust valve, now that compression can't build up to push the piston back down and drive the truck further down the road. All of that air pressure bleeds out through the exhaust. That's why we say we're turning it into a big air compressor. We're pumping all the air out the exhaust now instead of the compression pushing the piston back down. So that that bleed off of all that air is what creates the drag on the vehicle. That's correct. So the question, is using the engine brake too often bad for itself? No. Now that we understand how it works, and Bruce, you threw a good statistic in there, um, in all the trucks I've ever owned, I never rebuilt Jake's or replaced them. But I never took a truck to 2 million miles. And you said it takes almost that long to wear a set out. Also, right. having Wait. dirty oil would affect it. Uh, you know, obviously, you've run bypass filtration, so the oil is cleaner. Ah, true. So, and and yeah. that's what wears take out would be dirty oil. You basically have a slave piston, a master piston, a spool that's in a machined area, very tight tosses that move going up and down. And with dirty oil, you're going to wear that bore out to where you don't have that tight fit and the jake becomes less effective. Good point. So that's yeah. going to make it as well. Yeah, so the answer is use your jakes all you want. They wear out a lot less than the mechanical brakes do. And the more often you use your jake, the less you have to use your mechanical brakes. Everything lasts longer. Just on a safety side, Kevin, I mean, the truck should not not have Jake brakes on it. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's I no agree. reason the right. truck should not have Jake brakes. I mean, the safe aspect of it. Um, yeah. They work really well. I mean, even on the older trucks, they work. It's not like this is something that's just become efficient. I mean, the Jakes on an NTC were efficient. They made a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if you do need to rebuild, the, the rebuild kit you buy a kit with the gaskets, the spools, springs, O-rings. Uh, you might have three or three fifteen a rebuild kit and an hour and a half of labor to rebuild them. That most guys can do themselves, or do it when you're doing the overhead and half the work's already there. It, it absolutely makes sense to have the jakes and maintain them. Yes, I agree. 
I agree. You know, when my dad taught me how to drive, he said basically getting off the interstate, there's no reason you should have to use your brakes. And he would make me downshift all the way down with the Jake on and not using the brakes, the foot pedal or the hand valve. And for the most part, he's right. You have plenty of room getting off of an interstate to make that entire transition without really using your brakes. Yeah. You know, you see it every day, the four-wheelers. They they have to pass you at 80 miles an hour, and then they cut in front of you and go down the exit ramp. That's a real pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, I just looked at the board. We are swamped with calls. We're uh, we're just chatting right. right here. We we need to get to some calls. Let's go to Ohio. Herschel, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. What's on your mind today? Can you hear me? Yep. Well, um, about a week ago, I think it was, I sent you that oil sample. I had that seven point seven. Indeed, I know I talked to you about it as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Remember that. So I took it to Williams, Detroit, and Columbus. People that put the injectors in the second new set. It got a new set in May last year. It got another new set in September last year because that set went bad. When they tested and did diagnosis yesterday, I not have one. I don't have two. I have three of the six leaking and streaming. My warranty is for 12 months from the original purchase. So I am at month 13 when I put the truck there. They will not not guarantee it unless they put the injectors in, which they're going to this time. Then they give you two years. Back in May last year, I had my local shop do it. Because he's a good guy. He's no problem that they only give you one year. If somebody else puts the bed, you just buy the parts. So now I'm on the hook for another set. This will be three sets in 13 months. And doing containers, I probably have 70, 75,000 miles in that year. You know, this is this is more common than it should be. We, we've been talking about this for years. It just sucks you have to go through all this, replace injectors, and then they fail again like that. Yeah, so the only set available that they can get is their store in Phoenix, Arizona. So they have to send them to Columbus, Ohio, and it'll probably be Monday next week at least. So two, two and a half weeks down because of a set of injectors. Again, three of them in 13 months. But again, they they found a problem. We see this a lot with the 12.7s where, you know, the oil analysis shows fuel dilution. But when we would run the test, whether it be with the dye and or the pressure or both, it can always show up. Uh, now, yours is a little higher than normal. Yours was 7.7%. Yes. Yeah. Whereas a lot of times it's at 4%, which obviously something's going on, but it is really hard to find when it's down low like that. So unfortunately, you have to pay for it, but at least they found the problem. Yeah, well, they did die in pressure when they did the testing beat, and it, it clearly showed itself, so here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's frustrating. <laughs> well, Kevin, you said to let you know what they found out, and there you are, so yeah, hopefully you- Christine will behave herself. 
for a while until the market crashes. And I can buy that $100,000 truck with 300,000 miles on it for about 28 because you know that's coming. It's coming. Yep, you're right. Yep. yep. It's coming. So, well, I'm right, glad guys. you. I'm glad they found it. I'm glad you called back, and we know it sucks that we still deal with that. Yes, it does. Yeah. All right, sir. Have a good one. All right, thanks for the call. Let's go to Idaho this time. I'll try that again, Heath. Welcome to the program. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm going to be one of Bruce's new fuel mileage improver testers. I run a dedicated run. I uh, do I do two loads a week. Um, twice as to go pick up my load, I go from Salt Lake to St. George empty and then back to Salt Lake loaded. And on my Friday run, I go to Southern Idaho. And on my Monday run, I go to Eastern Idaho or into Western Wyoming. Um, the 2014 Pro Star with an ISX, 2.85 rear end and a 10 double over. Now, when I talked to Bruce about three weeks ago, I was averaging on my 30 day 7.75, but my speed was kind of all over the place. So I have, in the last couple of weeks, I have settled on 66 miles an hour at 1175 RPM. And my last four fill ups have been 8.3, 8.2, 8.11, and 8.17. And then I am going to fill up at the exact same spot at my terminal, regardless of price, to keep all the variables down. So I will not be starting my the new test until the beginning of August. Got it. Okay. So that's, well, uh, that's where I'm at, and uh, I want to. I will call you guys back at the beginning of September um, and let you know how the test goes. Sounds good. All right, sounds good. We'll look forward to it. All right, thank you, gentlemen. You're welcome. Let's go to lost wages. Bob, welcome to the program. How are you doing this morning? Good. What's on your mind today? I got a 2022 uh, Cascadia DD15. Keep having problems with the uh, uh, inlet and act sensor. With that fuel catalyst, would that help with any of that? Absolutely. We have had several people with uh, one guy had a Mac, a newer Mac, and he ran out of catalyst. He went 6,000 miles. He used to pull out his boost sensor just to look at it because that was the easiest way to see how clean the engine was staying inside. In 6,000 miles, his turbo boost sensor was carboned up because he was out of catalyst. Needless to say, he's back on catalyst and his boost sensor staying clean. So get the, clean it off, use brake clean or whatever, or maybe Leroy has something better, and get on the catalyst and then pull it out in three more months and look at it and see if it's clean. Sounds good. I know right where you guys have it here in Vegas. I'll go down and get a uh, get a gallon of it, and we'll see what happens. Who in Vegas has it? Is that DPF Alternatives? Yep, yep. Right downtown, right next to uh, the stadium. All right, fantastic. Downtown Las Vegas, huh? Yep. 
Luckily, I have a rental car still, because we're not taking a rig down there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I will say that, All right. um, Thank you guys. speaking of uh, Las Vegas, that... Um, uh, and this was years ago, so don't count on this. But I actually had a really good experience at the Freightliner dealer there. Um, just, I just thought it was uh, probably one of the better experiences I've had at a Freightliner dealer. Let's uh, let's head off to Houston this time. Jake, welcome to the program. Hey, good morning, guys. Love the show. Hey, I found a uh, a truck that I'm looking at. I just want to see, kind of ascertain whether it's worth my time. Um, it's got a, uh, it's like a pre-2003 model Peterbilt. I think the model number is a 330. It's got a Cat 3126B as in boy in it. Can you guys, uh, from your best experience, can you tell me your experience with that motor? Yeah, it's a pretty low horsepower engine. A lot of the guys that worked rodeos years ago had those in freight liners, and their complaint was their foot was always on the floor. We could give it an extra 100 horsepower, and that really helped. What kind of weight do you want to haul with it? Well, I'm just trying to see what I can do with the. It, it looks like a truck that was spec for local work, maybe dump trailers, things like that. So I'm just trying to possibly add it to the arsenal. It seems like a decent price. Uh, the motor has very low hours on it. The mileage on the truck itself is less than probably 60,000 miles. So uh, as the uh, as you guys have been talking about, uh, obviously these type of opportunities are going to come about, and I just want to see if this is worth my time. So are what, you going to haul 80,000 pounds with it? Uh well, I wanted to see whether I could turn it into something, possibly OTR. No. Um, but no. likely, I'm no. just going to kind of keep it in the arsenal for yeah. probably local work. Yeah, don't seven Don't even think about putting this thing over the road. Uh, yeah, I, I was just okay. trying to remember, this is less than nine liters, I think. Yeah, it's a C7. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. no way it's you like, want to put this so truck over the road. It's like we're not even considered a. Is it not considered a class eight truck? What would this I, be considered? I think. I, I think that's a percentage? class six. Yeah. Okay, so the specs on it, guys, is uh, I think it's all standard: three hundred horsepower with eight hundred sixty foot pounds of torque. There's your problem yep. right there. The the horsepower isn't even. I mean, it's not what we're used to. But that is a really low amount of torque to try to move this much weight across the country all the time. That's, that's, and that's not even as much as today pickup. Today's pickup truck. Right. Well, what I was looking at, guys, what what attracted me to the to the deal was that it's a it's a two thousand model. I want to say a two thousand model cat. It's all pre-emissions, right? Sure. So, you know, we're not, we're not dealing well, that, with DGR. We're not dealing with any of the emission issues. Well, I get that. But what we're telling you is this engine is way too small. I mean, we're not even talking close. You know, people used to give me a hard time because I wanted to run an 11 liter with 80,000 pounds across the country. And they thought that was too small. This is, you know, 60% of that. 
Right. Okay. So, do you, I mean, just guessing at what the, the specs, it's got an eight-speed LL. I'm not sure what that is. Low, low, I guess. Uh, this yeah. is the existing specs on, on the tractor. It's an eight-speed LL. Um, it's uh, It's got 390s in the rear end. Um, let me tell you something. In order to get that engine to even pull 80,000 pounds, you you got to start looking at gears like 456s. Hmm. With 390s. What's the, uh, that thing will actually really on, struggle. With any kind of what weight. I just said, though, Kevin, I mean, what, what do you think this truck was spec for? It's got a long flatbed on it, basically. It's got like a, say, yeah. about a 20-foot flat. The it, chassis itself is probably let, let, about 35 feet. It was used now, for let running. Let me tell you what they were used for. Yeah, go ahead, Bruce, because I know exactly what they were using it they for. Were used, they were used for like an F550 that was made for a road service truck. Like right. a Caterpillar wanted to have a, a boom on it and haul tools. That's what they were made for, single axles. Some of them were pulling fifth wheel RVs and they didn't pull them very good. Uh, guys that I know that had race car trailers, they absolutely hated them. So we're, yeah, we're just really wasting time more, talking about this truck. More than likely with that long flatbed, it was used locally moving long stock around between shops. You know, this, this shop needs a 12 foot section of pipe. This thing probably hardly ever right. had any significant weight on it, and and ran around local. So no, don't don't even now. Well, let, let's forget this truck because I'm with Bruce. We're we're just if you decide to go buy this truck to put it on the road, even trying to run, you know, class eight stuff locally, this thing is going to struggle. I I just I can't see why you would be interested in this right. one at all. But let me let me give you something else since you're looking at vehicles in this market when you said it looks like a good price all i would say is make sure that every time you look at a truck and you think it's the right price you better be going back and looking at the market again because rates are dropping faster than they went up not rates but prices of equipment right now they're dropping faster than they went up so if you think a price is good this week and you look at another truck next week, you better go back and look at the prices again. Yes, sir. And I'm, I'm just looking at, you know, I mean, I may not pull the trigger on this thing ever, especially with the feedback that I've got from you guys. Is there any value in the motor itself, Bruce? None. I mean, zero. Right. This, is a, okay. this is a junk truck. It's bad. It's, it's, okay. it's a bad truck. Is it not worth twelve grand? No, no, <laughs> no. it's not. <laughs> not really? a. <laughs> yeah. well, well, really well, well, Look, hey, 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 Jake. Let me let me say this: if if I owned a business locally and I was constantly paying somebody to move long stock around, or I have to keep going and renting trucks, yeah, this would be worth twelve thousand dollars in a heartbeat. I would take it. It, yeah, it'd be an awesome vehicle for somebody who needed to move uh, some of their own stuff around locally. Somebody buying the truck looking right. to put it to work somehow and make money with it, it it's almost worthless. Got it. Okay, guys, you answered my question. Uh, so, uh, bottom line, you guys, uh, Bruce, you mentioned you can add about 100 horsepower to it, that 3126 yeah. is and boy. 
What um, yeah. what and what would that do that, for torque? Does that increase the foot pounds like twelve hundred pounds foot pounds? Uh, um, yeah, rule of thumb, a hundred horses to three hundred foot pounds. That's the rule of thumb. Right. It, the, right. The issue is like we we can the ECM and the injectors can fuel enough. It's the other the next problem you run into is the turbo is too small. So as soon as we try to shoot for a reasonable horsepower where they start to feel good, then it overspeeds the turbo and people end up just grenading the turbo. So you have to upgrade the turbo if you want any significant power in sure. sure. Okay. And for that, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Well, guys, you helped me make a decision. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Illinois this time. Brad, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? Good. What's on your mind today? Uh, I was in a listening earlier, and they said that the X15 has a water filter on it. And I've got a 2019 model, and I don't believe it's got a water filter on it. I... I- I wouldn't be surprised. I think a lot of trucks today don't have water filters. That's why I was so shocked when we started finding out that plenty of new trucks do seem to have water filters again. I And I'm still not sure I understand why. I think it is optional. So it just depends on how you know, it was spec'd. Okay. Yeah. And now the main reason is I just got my truck back out of the shop. They done a in-frame where they replaced all the bearing cylinders and the head and I asked the shop foreman when I needed to change my oil and he was like I was just running to the normal service interval which for challenges is like 50 or 60,000 miles and it's like it's like you're crazy and I'm going to change it at 5,000 miles I believe that's what Bruce and them recommended and after the 5,000 miles do I need you go to my normal service interval or do I need to change it sooner than that? We, we say We say on a fresh rebuild you change between one and two thousand. And the next one you'll change at eight thousand. And then you can increase it from there. All righty, and I was talking to you about the I started using the fuel catalyst. And just tell me I need to do the engine cleaning. After I ran through two gallons of the fuel catalyst, do I still need to do that? Or since they replaced the head, can I just get the DPS filter cleaned? Hello? Did anybody get wow, that? Sorry about that. I'm, I'm in a rest area and a guy put on the hand dryer. So. Oh. <laughs> so where are we? On I-70 heading towards Breezewood. I know right where you are. Brad, What uh, can you ask that question again? Uh, I talked to you probably about two months ago about I just started using the fuel catalyst and 
you said after I ran through two two or three gallons of it, I needed to bring it in houses to do the uh, force clean. Since they replaced the hand stuff, do I still need to do the force clean, or can I just get the DPF cleaned? What's the recommendation on that? I think this whole system should still be inspected anyways. Uh, you can tell by pulling like the Venturi tube off of the EGR, and you can sort of see if it needs a diesel force cleaning or not. Um, and if it does, then we can kind of go from there. But I would say, well, you need to get it in and just take a look at everything first and see where the current condition that it's in before we take action. Yeah. All righty. And, you know, I've got to give you props and kudos. Uh, when I started getting a fuel catalyst, I set it up to have it reoccurring on a regular basis, and when my truck was off, I was due to get a gallon, and I didn't need it, and been able to easily go in there and adjust the next delivery day was easiest to be, and I just want to say it's done a great job on making it so simple to adjust your delivery time. I appreciate that. You know, basically let other drivers out there know that it does good and being able to adjust that is simple. And I appreciate all you guys today. I, last time I got cut off, and I just wanted to thank you and Kevin for helping us out here on the road as much as possible. You're welcome. And uh, I I do cut a lot of people off. That's just how talk shows work. I just cut you off again. Um, Just because when, especially when we have a lot of calls. And uh, today I do want to make sure we we get everybody in on the power hour before we roll over to the pit here in about 30 minutes. Uh, So sometimes I do cut people off before they get to say goodbye because... Saves us some time. We can get to more calls like right now. We're going to head off to Colorado. Rodney, welcome to the program. Morning, everybody. What's on uh, your mind today? I got a question on a B model cat. Uh, injection pump timing using a timing meter on a 3406B. I uh, I just ordered, I'm converting that peak, and I talked to you guys at the show, um, in American, and uh, I'm converting the peak to mechanical, and I finally got my pump built. Uh, got it from a guy in Minnesota, RJ Bastry. He built it for my VIN number, and he's got the, had to buy a new time in advance for it, and he's got it set as close as he can but it needs to be set with a timing meter. And I'm just wondering what the process is and and if you could explain that a little bit to me. How to time the engine other than pin timing it? Yes. It's actually using a, it's a cat specific tool. Yes. Uh, the, uh, so I haven't done that for over 20 years. Uh, we did do it. I don't remember how. I, I know you take either number one or number six plunger out of the pump. You put the tool in there. You rotate the engine. There's a dial indicator. Um, 
my God, it's just been so long. I, and I didn't do many of them. We, we didn't do a whole lot with the mechanical cats. So um, it, it's not terribly hard, somewhat involved, but I don't remember how it was done. But more involved than just pin timing it, which a lot of people think if they pin time their engine, they're fine, and that's not the case. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I've been hearing. And, you know, I've got quite a bit of money wrapped up in the in the pump, and, and uh, I've got it at Rush. Uh, Peterbilt and Greeley. I've had good luck with them. My my dilemma is finding a B model tech that'll work on that stuff. Um, most of these guys are uh, retiring, and the younger generation is just not uh, picking that up. And so that's kind of my question. I've got a good young guy there that's working on it. That's excited. <laughs> I'm just not sure he has the full knowledge. So that's something that, you know, if you go to a cat dealership that does equipment, they're going to have a guy that knows how to do it simply because a lot of equipment is still running mechanical engines. And it's a lot easier to replace an engine in a piece of equipment than to replace the three or $400,000 piece of equipment. So it is tough to find. Most shops that uh, work on trucks don't have a mechanical cat mechanic around. But I would, would think there'd be something on YouTube that your tech could look at. Mm -hmm. If he follows it step-by-step, it should be okay. Ask the Google guy. (laughs) Would would any damage occur if if we got this put together and and got it to a a cat shop in that regard? So if you get it in time, I mean, you're close enough to be safe with it. And then get okay. it to a shop that can do it. I mean, that gets you a lot of people. That's all they do because they don't have the tools or the knowledge to do the other timing. Um, so that that would uh, get you close enough that you can safely get to another shop for sure. All right. Okay. And then, real quick, uh, can I get you guys' opinion on a on a charge air cooler? Um, the one I had is old and needs to be replaced. I can find uh, aftermarket replacement for right around $1,000 and a Duralite for 2100 And I don't know that I'm really going to put a lot of miles on this on this truck. It's more of just a kind of a build project uh, and, and use as a day cab version. Uh, so I'm wondering, do you think it's affordable to buy the, the Duralite versus an aftermarket? So, you know, on air-to-air, there's not much of a difference when it comes to efficiency. Most of it's durability. Uh, the cheaper ones don't hold up. Uh, we sell a really good barn plate design one here. If you call our shop with the OEM part number, my guys can cross it over. And they're in the $1,000 range, $900 range, and, and it has a seven-year warranty on it. Oh, Okay. Yeah, the Duralite has the seven-year warranty, too. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize Duralite okay. jumped up so much. That expensive. Yeah, for, for that particular model, it did. <laughs> hey, did you say you were oh, yeah, in Minnesota? I'll, I'll, uh, give the shop a call. No, that's where I had the uh, pump built. Oh, okay. My injection pump built. Okay. I'm in Colorado. Uh, yeah, Matt just sent over that uh, Midwest Diesel and Blaine does a lot of cat work. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I've had a guy here in, in Greeley, um, but 
he's uh, <laughs> he, uh, it's hard to get a hold of. And uh, maybe I can, I don't know, chase him down. But anyway. There you go. Um, another real quick comment on the uh, Jake breaks. Um, on my uh, DD-15 in the 2019 Cascadia, um, it uses the Jake brake to to shift, to upshift. And uh, it's kind of odd. It also uses the uh, Jake brake when you go to key off. And I don't know what stage. I'm, I'm sure it's just in stage one uh, to slow the engine down when you turn the ignition off. So hmm. it's just a... Well, so you're, you're saying the auto shift when you're when it's upshifting actually engages the Jake. It must be doing it to drop the RPM a little faster. Oh yeah, when you're when you're empty, it'll shift shift. Yeah, and uh, right. on the uh, CT12, and then yeah, it'll it'll engage that Jake for a split second and uh, and grab the next gear. Got it. Yeah, I never could figure out how to do it. So we, we call it the Billy Big Rigger version. <laughs> there you go. All right. We're going to grab another call. Let's head off to Texas this time. Justin, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. I had an old sample I wanted you to look at. Yeah, I've, uh, I've got it here. And uh, let, me, uh, let me go back and get that again. Um, what year is this engine? Okay, so this is an it, it's an ISC, right? Right. That's the yeah, that 8.3 8. liter, and this is electronic um, that year. There, I'm a little confused here. Um, we've got 228,000 miles on the engine, um, about 15, almost 16,000 on the oil. Um, you have horrible fuel dilution, 7.4%, but the viscosity really isn't that low. I mean, your viscosity is at 13.9. I'm almost a little confused as to how we could have so much fuel dilution, but not really lose viscosity nearly as much as I thought we should have. Um... That's why I wanted you to have a look at it. Yeah, I have we. Did you change this oil? Yeah. You know, all I can really say on this, I, I, I would resample this at maybe even as low as seventy five hundred miles. Okay. Because if there truly is this much fuel dilution, we should pick it up pretty quickly. My, my, I'm just a little confused as to how we had so much fuel dilution, but we really didn't lose viscosity. That's, that's not making sense right. to me. So I, I would just want to see one more um, test, at, but I would do it at 7,500. I wouldn't wait too long. Okay. And then it is basically the same then that would be injectors, right? Yeah, I would. I, unless, does anybody else know, is the ISC known for fuel pump issues or anything else that could cause this? I mean, it certainly seems like injectors. No, any? I'm not seeing or knowing of any issues with them. We don't see many of the, I went to A3s, a known issue, but you can't just call out injectors before you get 
I mean, it could be a pump. It could be a cracked head. Yeah, there are other things, right? Yeah. What year? Well, a 12. So it'd be a common rail. And then you also have the tubes that go between the injector and and the uh, the outside, and, and they can see there. Yeah, I'm not sure how the whole science is laid out, but there's definitely a lot of places people can get into oil. Besides just the injector. Yeah, so I, I would go one more sample, 7,500. If it comes back high, um, then I'd find somebody and start troubleshooting the most. You know, don't just throw injectors at it. Make sure we troubleshoot some of those other possibilities. Okay. All right. Let's All right. There you go. All right. We are going to wrap this up. Um, I know we lost Bruce and we just got him back, so I'm going to bring him back in here. Um, we're going to wrap this up for today. Anybody have anything they want to close with? I don't have anything. Well, I don't have anything. All right. Kevin, are you going to talk politics in the uh, next show? I am. 930. And uh, Bruce... Um, there's, there's a book recommendation. You should get this book and listen to it and read it. Pretty incredible. Could be total bullshit. Okay. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really kind of out there, um, but it also makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, that's what I'll be talking about here in about 20 minutes. Okay. All right. One, All right. I, I do have hey, one. Are you going to talk about is it? Is it true that I read they're eliminating owner-operators in California? Is that true? Oh, it's already done. Yeah, that's true. It's already done. Yep. So here's what they've done. They have made it illegal in the state of California to lease your truck to another trucking company. That's really what they did. So now if you are an owner-operator and you were leased to a carrier, that is no longer legal in the state of California. You would have to go get your own authority. So can owner-operators, say, from Texas drive to California? Yes. We're, we're, you know, this is going to take years to work out in the courts. It, it's not very clear because the state of California passed this law not thinking about trucking. They passed this law. They were really trying to crack down on all the gig work like Uber and Instacart and DoorDash. They were really trying to address that issue. What they failed to realize, and this is the problem with government, the law of unintended consequences. All these other industries that are going to be affected by this law, and for them it doesn't make sense, they really haven't addressed. Well, what if the company, the trucking company's in California, but I live in Nevada? Can I lease my truck to them? Or what if I live in California, but the trucking company's in Nevada? Am I allowed to lease to them? None of those questions have really been answered. So most of those people, I would just say, just keep doing what you're doing. If California wants to come after you, we'll figure that out after a while. California is going to have its hands full just trying to enforce this when everything is within the state. The trucking companies there, the owner operators there, that's who they're going after first. And it'll take them years 
to work some of this stuff out. But there is a bill in Congress right now, federal. It has passed the House, and it's exactly like this in California. It's basically an AB5 type law. It's passed the House, and it's stuck in the Senate. So elections have consequences. Democrats are pushing hard to pass a bill like this. The Republicans are basically fighting against it. But that would mean that across the country, you would not be allowed to lease your truck to another trucking company. Wow. Why are they even concerned with the trucking industry? Taxes. So much. They want to make everybody employees. Taxes and control. It's so much easier to control an employee and to get your taxes from them. That's all this is. It's a big money grab. Wow. Wow. Money and control. Okay. All right. One quick thing, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Um, We mentioned we were talking about the price of trucks falling so fast. You should be on the phone with your insurance company and making sure you've got the proper coverage and you're not paying for a bunch of coverage that you can't use. I I wish we could fix this in the insurance industry. I think this is a horrible setup. But when all these people that just bought their trucks within the last six months to a year and really overpaid, like, you paid $140,000 for a three-year-old truck. When you went to put insurance on it, they asked you what you paid for it. And when you said 140000 that's what you are insuring that vehicle for. You're paying for $140,000 worth of coverage. When your truck burns to the ground or gets stolen or totaled, they're going to go to the market and say, okay, your truck today is worth $55,000. That's all you're getting. doesn't matter that you are paying the premiums for double that or more. You only get the book value. So you've got to go back occasionally and reset your insurance valuation based on what the truck is worth today. The insurance company won't do this for you. They won't tell you about this. But many people just keep paying those premiums based on a value that doesn't exist anymore. And with what we just went through on truck prices, now is a really good time to go clear that up. All right. That's it for today. I will be back in 15 minutes with the pit. We'll see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power. We'll see you guys again next week. Be safe. Be profitable, be fit and healthy, always do the hard work and master the journey.